Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everybody. This is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bécher, meaning digger. Hello everybody, welcome along to this edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast and we're looking ahead in this one to the third test between England and Pakistan but before we get that far, thank you very much to tvsportsblog.com for their continued support of the Cricket Badger Podcast it's very much appreciated give them a follow as well on Twitter at tvsportsblog but as always on this podcast, looking ahead to England against Pakistan it's Graham Hardcastle, Graham, how are you? Yeah, not so bad James, yourself? Yeah, I'm good, I'm very good actually um, disappointed though with the second test match it was... Uh, well, very much a damp squib, very much literally, wasn't it? Bad light, rain. We only saw probably a cumulative day and a half of, of cricket there. And a lot has been said about the bad light and how cricket can maybe cope with that. And I've seen a few people say, well, yeah, it's not worth going too overboard about because it happens so infrequently. But, you know, unless we do something about bad light in test matches... It's an entertainment business. We have to maximise the audience's pleasure in these events. And unless we do something about it when, we, when we're when reminded that bad light is a problem, we will be returning to this exact same conversation in two years' time, won't we? Yeah, I mean, the thing that frustrates me, I mean, I've, I've been at a game this week, Yorkshire v Derbyshire, that had 138 overs lost to the weather. Now, the vast majority of them were lost to rain, which obviously you can do nothing about. That's that, that's just part of the game, part and parcel, and something you can't overcome unless you built a roof. There was an issue, a, a minor issue with bad light that left me scratching my head on on the second day. We only had one over. As the players came out, Midway through the day, I think, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was around about 2.30, 3 o'clock, something like that. And as the players came out, the floodlights were on. I said in the press box, looks a bit dark here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised they're out here. But anyway, it was the, the left-arm quick for Derbyshire, Michael Cohen, who was, who was the most slippery prospect they had. He bowled that. He 
David Milan walked him away for two fours, as easy as you like. The umpires got together and came off for bad light. I had no problem with them coming off for bad light, given I'd, I'd said only five minutes earlier. It was murky. It's murky. It's, it's not looking great. The problem I had is why did they bowl me over in the first place? Because there was no difference in the light between between the start of the over and the end of the over. And it, it, it just, that's the kind of thing that just leaves people scratching their heads. Now, because I, because I was in, in kind of Bob Willis trophy mode this week, I didn't actually see a great deal of the Pakistan v England test match. There wasn't a great deal so, of it, Graham. So I can't, <laughs> no, 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 but I, I can't give you an exact view on, on instances like that within the game and whether they were right to come off here and right to go, to go on there, all that kind of stuff. The one thing I will say is I do not understand why there are different rules for T20 cricket than there are to test match cricket, one day cricket, that kind of thing. At limit, limited overs games are, are pretty much put together, aren't they, and separated from test matches when rain and light it is factored in. And I just do not understand that because at the end of the day, people are still paying money to watch the game. There are still broadcast deals and all that kind of stuff. In the, the current climate that we're talking about, the ECB have thrown millions at this project. I, I want to say project restart, but that's a football terminology, but you, you get what I'm trying to say. Why is it any different? If it is fit to play cricket, then it is fit to play any sort of cricket. Well, that's what and, they, they always come I out with player safety, people, don't they? They come out with player safety and they say, um, if it's too murky, yeah, exactly. The, the same bones are broken, whether it's one day or, or, or test matches, aren't they? So surely it's, it should be the I, same the, across the board. Yeah, the ball, the ball's still the same. Um, you know, in, in, in a in a sense of, of how hard it is. Uh, as you say, the same bones are still broken, all that kind of stuff. It is a, an issue that just leaves you scratching your head yeah. almost, almost every time that it crops up. And I, I just think, for, for want of a better phrase, they should just, the ICC should just grow a pair and get on with it, really. The, the, the thing with the ICC is that they're obviously in charge of world cricket, aren't they? And obviously the conditions around the, the world change dramatically from country to country. There aren't very many other test match playing countries where they have weather like we have in in England you know you, you go to Australia you go to India you go you know you're fairly fairly guaranteed hot weather and sunshine and, and rain interruptions are few and far between unless you hit monsoon season and obviously cricket's not usually played in those times whereas in England we get you know fantastic weather one day and it can be horrible the next can't it and there's very few countries replicate that around the world at a danger of, of repeating what people uh, have said numerous times over the last week or so, numerous times over the, the last, well, however many years, cricket is a sport that isn't the front and centre in every single country in the world. It's front and centre in, in India. It's front and centre in probably Pakistan, Bangladesh, places like that. It's not front and centre in England. It's a big, it's a big deal, but it's not front and centre. It's not front and centre in Australia either. They've got many other sports that are that kind of dominate the landscape as well. So therefore, it needs to do everything possible to push itself further into the public 
the public eye. And one of the easiest things would be to say, just get on with it. I mean, you can't, we're not daft. I mean, you can't end up playing in a, in light that is just obviously poor. You know, we've all, we've all played golf in a, a kind of like 10 o'clock on an English summer's night where you whack it down the fairway and you, you're just hoping on hope that you hit it straight and you can see it in the middle of the fairway because if it goes 30 yards left or 30, 30 yards right, the light is such that you've got no chance of finding it. That kind of light is obviously poor. You're not going to play. However, when it is borderline, then you should play. It shouldn't be a situation where it's borderline, will come off. It should be borderline, we play, until it gets obviously dangerous, then, you know, we crack on. I mean, I suppose the, the, the difficulty um, for umpires, A, the umpires are, are given the rules by the ICC, so it's the umpires that get shouted at and, and zoomed in on television, but it's not all, it's not all down to them. Um, and the, the other thing is that, um, what might be dangerous to one person isn't dangerous to another. So if Steve Smith's on 260 not out and he's clobbering it everywhere, the danger level for him would be a little bit different to, say, if Phil Tufnell was facing Michael Holding. So so if, if Smith got out and then Tufnell walks in, does that automatically then become bad light where it was not bad light before? Is there a... Um, I know there's pros and cons of this, but is there some kind of remit or some kind of vantage to going back to making the batsman's decision on, on the light? I, I don't believe you can give the teams the decision because then it also it, it almost becomes a tactic and you can't you can't have that. All you need to do is very, very simple. You just need the powers that be to say to the umpires, be flexible. Use your common sense. We, we've got to move away from being rigid. We need to maximise play. You make the decision. Um, the umpires are, are experienced enough to be able to make decent decisions. Do you think the decisions might have been a little bit different this last week at the Aegeus Bowl if there'd been um, 25,000 people baying for the umpires' blood every time they went off a bad light? Yeah, they are human beings, the umpires, and it actually makes no, it no, it makes it an easier call, doesn't it, no. for an umpire if there's nobody there heckling them effectively? No, I, I don't. I don't think that has. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that has an impact. We're in an age. I, I actually think it, it, in life in general, really, where we are very rigid and we stick to the rules. You know, um, there's a there's a blame culture around around various walks of life that people want to try and avoid. Therefore, they do things that are to the letter of the law and often are looked at. And you, you kind of think to yourself, well, come on, use your common sense. I'm not particularly blaming the umpires here. I'm blaming the rule makers in kind of forcing the umpires to, to stick to the letter of them. There, there should be a much broader kind of scale with, with bad light. Do you think the fear of litigation is something that's very much... I mean, it, it, we are in a blame culture, but we're also in an era where... If you if you fall over a pavement, you sue the council. If you do, you know, there's always some kind of if, yeah, if yeah. there's blame, there's oh, yeah. a claim. Yeah. And you could see you could see a situation, can't you? When the batsman, when the light's a bit dubious, the umpires have decided to stay out. He's convinced it's actually too dark, and then he gets hit on the head next ball. Yeah, but the phone call to the lawyer happens next, doesn't it? Yeah, it shouldn't do really though, because I, I mean, I, you know, look, I'm not ruling that out by any stretch of the imagination, but it shouldn't do because those in professional sport are going into professional sport because they are good enough. Even a, a tail end batsman that you were kind of referencing earlier on 
should be capable enough to at least kind of make a decent fist of dealing with good fast bowling. E- even though they may not be able to prosper in it, they should they should be able to to make a decent fist of dealing with it. At the end of the day, these guys are being paid good money to do what they do. So it's an entertainment business, and they go they should go into it with the kind of view that we have got many many advantages in our profession. We are going to it's natural we are going to encounter disadvantages, and this is one of them. You know, you take away bad light, and it doesn't mean you take away the danger of cricket. There is still danger of getting it. It can be bright blue skies and 35, 40 degrees, and you still get hit. And, well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because you look at when um, Steve Smith was hit by Jeffrey Archer, it was a lovely day. When Phil Hughes sadly lost his life, that light wasn't an issue on that day, was it? So, you know, that there are... Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen light actually cause cause a problem. I mean, if if you go karting, for example, or if you go, um, I don't know, uh, paintballing, you sign something at the start of that, don't you? That process to say, I understand the risks of what I'm about to enter here. You know, it's it's not 100% safe. Yeah. You know, effectively, that could be written into players' contracts to get around the litigation issue, couldn't it? And I, I've heard a lot of people say as well, the over the last week, you know, bringing pink balls, either start the test match with pink balls or if you get to a, a, a situation where after 75 overs of day one, the light suddenly starts to get a little bit murky, you bring out a pink ball at 75 overs old and you, you revert to go, kind of going down that route. There's a number of options like that. I don't think any of them are foolproof and any of them are perfect. I think I'm in agreement with what you've said. At the moment, they bring out the light meters and why they can't have them in their pockets to start with, why the fourth umpire has to carry them out for them. Yeah, if, if it's a, a test match like we've just had, you know you're going to have to probably use the light meter at some stage, but that's a different argument. But if, you, if you're if you saying, if it's below, I don't know what the figures are, but say 5.5 is what they've deemed to be the too dark, just change the change that, just go up a little bit of a notch for that, because just say that there's a little bit more acceptability. We can play in this light, it has to get to 5 before we'll go off or something like that. At least that flexibility can still be rigid on to, in terms of the light meter, just change the light meter acceptability level. There just needs to be a margin, a margin of error, in a sense that you that you cannot, you know, it, ca- it cannot be rigid. That that is that is the way around it. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to abolish bad light or anything. I don't think anybody is calling for that. Well, you can't, yeah, you, you, can't, you can't play in pitch black weather, can you? I mean, it's, it, that's that's obvious, and there has to be some kind of cutoff point where it, it is deemed to be too too bad. But I mean, in the instance that you gave me at Headingley, and in the instance of one of the occasions where they came off for bad light when um, Rizwan had just hit a beautiful, he just danced on the wicket, hit a four. Um, in the instance you just gave me, David, David Milan had just hit a couple of boundaries. Um, when we, we went off the bad light in a, in a previous test match, two spinners were bowling and they still went off the bad light. There's no danger for to human life in that instance, but they still decide to take the call. And that's where the common sense comes in, isn't it? At the moment, the batsman's finding it really easy. We've got two spinners operating. So what is the problem? The answer is there isn't a problem. Let's carry on. Yeah, completely, completely. What people have got to remember and always got to remember about professional sport, whatever professional sport it is, it is an entertainment business. That, that's regardless of whether there's a crowd in the ground or not, because this year's a strange year, but there are still a lot of people watching on the TV that pay their subscriptions to watch on the TV. They are as much a paying member of the paying public as somebody sat in a seat, aren't they? If it wasn't an entertainment business, we wouldn't be, pl- we, we, we wouldn't be playing this summer. 
because if it, if it wasn't an entertainment business, what's the point? Absolutely. Um, they've got they've gone to so much trouble to get it on, but why 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 have they gone to so much trouble to get it on? Because of TV audiences and TV revenue. Therefore, by definition, that is entertainment. You know damn well that if Mr. Sky or Mr. BBC Radio or their equivalents in uh, overseas um, climbs strode up to the ICC and said, look, this billion-dollar, million-dollar contract that we signed last year, you are not actually fulfilling this because you keep coming off for, for dubious light. We're having to fill our TV programmes with discussions and replays of yesteryear when we're actually paying to show the live action. It's not good enough. We're going to withdraw some of our money. There'd soon be a, a very high-level conference call which would almost immediately change the rules if that was the case. Playing devil's advocate, the one thing that I would say is surely that conversation's happened previously. Well, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. You, you would hope so, yeah. Well, I mean, again, although, just, although, Graham, the, the, last time, uh, the last time we had such a, a situation as we had at the Aegeus Bowl this last week, and this is why we can't afford to let it go, because yeah, we might get another year or two before it happens again. I think there's only been two drawn test matches in England since since 2014. Both of those were at Lords, and neither of those were really down to the weather. Often when we get a day rained off, or it's followed by a beautiful day the next day, and we still get time to actually come to a positive outcome. So the Aegeus Bowl test match was a, a strange one from that respect, but it shouldn't be forgotten, because we don't, like I said at the very start of this, if we, if we do forget it and we decide it's not worth doing it, we'll be having this same conversation in two years' time, three years' time, when it does eventually happen again. And uh, so therefore, I think we can both say, we can move on from this part of the podcast by saying we both agree that something does need to change. Definitely, definitely something does need to change. Um, there is there is absolutely no doubt about that. And it's not it's not a major thing, is it, actually? It's, you know, it's not a major thing that needs to change. It's very simple. You don't need to sit there and, and come up with high-powered meetings to, to work out what you need to do. Um, for days on end, it's a, it's a very, very simple process to implement. Just get on with it. I think that the, the, the answer to it is, it's quite, and we, we've had this discussion on, on other um, podcasts about slightly different things, but it's to give the officials on the ground who have got the local knowledge and the access to actually being there and, and being able to talk to players and being able to talk to whoever's at the ground, a little bit more leeway to actually use common sense and to make the decisions on the ground that aren't having to refer them back to the ICC HQ all the time. Yeah, there's enough, there's, so there's enough experience between umpires, match referees. You know, I've, I've no problems having the captains involved in things and coaches even. I just... I would just be a little bit wary of giving giving teams the option to make decisions. I think those decisions have have got to remain with the the umpires and the officials and remain neutral. However, at the moment they're getting it wrong. The Cricket Badger Podcast is brought to you in association with TVSportsBlog.com. Excellent sporting content. It's well worth a look and give them a follow on Twitter at TVSportsBlog. Let's move on from bad light then. There isn't a huge amount of cricket to talk about, so that's why we're talking about bad light. And we're also going to come on to talk about county cricket as well in the uh, foreseeable future on this edition of the podcast. But we did the Ask Badger last week. It was quite successful, although Graham refused to answer some of the questions. We've done it again. Hashtag Ask Badger on the Twitter feed at cricket underscore badger. And uh, we have three that I'm going to read out questions that we've got at our disposal here, Graham. The first one's from Jane. 
Given that England will be potentially visiting India stroke UAE this winter and looking ahead to the Ashes as well the following winter, would it be feasible for Dominic Bess to get match practice by playing matches abroad in our off-season to prepare him? Overseas players come to England for the same reason. Why can't Dominic Bess and the like go abroad to get experience? Yeah, I, I, complete, I completely agree. There is... I mean, that does that does happen to a degree. Where, I mean, Bess, Bess has been abroad on Lions tours and things like that. It doesn't happen very often, does it? You see, you see the odd occasion of of an England player going and playing for a state team to come back from injury. I think Jimmy Anderson did it at, at Auckland a few years ago. I would be a, an advocate of doing that completely. You certainly see more more players coming over to county cricket to gain experience for international cricket than you do our players going going overseas. The, I, I suppose the problem at the moment is that heaven knows what will be possible this winter with COVID restrictions, travel, etc. So it may, it may not be something that can be, can be implemented this winter. In a way, Graham, it's more, it's more important for the, the spinners to get that. I mean, obviously, batsmen going to the subcontinent and getting used to spin would be a, be a feather in their cap. But... Yeah, Dominic Best this summer, he hasn't bowled a huge amount of overs in, in, in really needy times. And we're going to be probably asking him to bowl for England in India and then wondering why he can't take five wickets on the final day, aren't we? And, you know, it, it's only fair to him to give him give him that experience. Yeah, com- completely. I, my only kind of reservation, I, I, I agree 100% in theory. My only reservation is in immediate practice yep. in the sense of travel restrictions and things like that how how likely is that to happen yeah it's not um, it's, it's not going to happen this winter, this winter is it Imran's been in touch on the ask badger questions he says should England drop Sam Curran play either Mark Wood or Joffre in the third test match and he says will we get 400 overs in well the answer to that Imran is your google and your weather forecasts are probably just as good as mine and Graham who knows? I mean, I, I put up the draw. We'll come on to that in a second. I put up the draw ahead of the second test match because the weather forecast did look particularly grim, but looks a little bit better for the third test match, but there's still a little bit of rain around as well. So fingers crossed, because I think this series deserves a finale. I think Pakistan, credit for them for coming over in these COVID times, but they've come over and they've played some really good cricket as well. So hopefully um, they get a chance to at least try for that win that will get them the one-all in the series in that third test match. In terms of Sam Curran, I, I, I rate Sam Curran as a player, but I would rate Joffre and Mark Wood better than him in terms of their potential impact in the bowling department. So Sam Curran's always one of those that would be in my 16, but would probably hardly ever get into my 11, despite the fact that he's got a really good record. He's an excellent cricketer, isn't he? The thing that the other two have ahead of him is that they have that little bit of that little bit of X factor. Archer's pace, Wood's pace. There's just that little bit of something extra about Archer and Wood that you would always think, well, yeah, I'd probably have the, I'd probably have them ahead of Curran. Yeah. But there is no doubt he is a fabulous cricketer. The, the weather at the GS Bowl has interrupted Sam Curran's record because I think it was seven or eight test matches he played at home. They were all victories. This was the first non-victory for Sam Curran. That was a draw because of the weather. So he certainly has an impact when he does play, particularly on home shores. But there's a few in that camp as well who have got the game to play in England because they are English and they, they play better on these uh, these surfaces. It's quite a similar kind of record to, to what Tim Bresnan had a few years ago, isn't it? Yeah, and they are quite similar cricketers in the sense that they would never ever let you down. Great players, 
never ever let you down, but we're, we're also never able to, to maybe hold down a, a regular spot, maybe because of, of the reason that I said that, you know, it's perceived that other players have just that little bit extra about them to make things happen. Moving on to uh, the final of the Ask Badger questions for this edition of the podcast, and that comes from Ted, and he says, if you were to pick a combined 11 between England and Pakistan from what we've seen in this series so far, who would make that final 11? And that's one of those uh, down-the-pub kind of questions, isn't it? You know, which, which of that team would make the other team? I think there's one obvious one for me from Pakistan. Um, Babar Azam goes in there. I think you'd have to probably play both Joe Root and Babar Azam in the combined side, and probably at three and four. You'd probably have an opener from each side, wouldn't you, at the moment? I think you'd probably have Sibley and Masood, wouldn't you? Although Shan Masood had that um, 156 in the first innings and he's done absolutely nothing since. Abid Ali's been better than Shan Masood since that opening innings. Um, right, yeah. I mean, I say just, just going off, off kind of stats at the moment. Sibley um, and Burns are very, very hit and miss in this uh, this summer as well, aren't they? I think I think for openers, I'd be tempted to actually say that probably Masood and Abid Ali have out, outperformed Sibley and, and Burns so far. You know, going down to the bowling, you'd have Yasir Shah over Don Best, wouldn't you, at the moment? You know, there's, I mean, the bowling is probably the hardest to pick, actually. Well, we, we, bo- we both agree that Root and, and Baba get in. We both agree that yeah, Yasir yeah. Shah gets in, so that's three of them. I would take Mohamed Rizwan over Joss Butler so far. As a complete package, we could keep no, a batsman. I, I, would, I wouldn't. Have you seen no, Rizwan's keeping no. compared to Butler's? Yes. Chalk and cheese. I'm, Chalk and cheese. I am very much of the opinion. I... <laughs> I'm actually a little bit in the Ed Smith camp with, with Butler. I don't mind his selection as a little bit of a luxury and the potential. I, I know all the arguments and, and you know, that's, that's for a podcast that we've done previously. The potential for what Butler could give to a side, for me, is far, far greater than what Mohamed Rizwan could give to a side. And, and therefore, I would have Butler. We disagree on that. It's the only one we disagreed on so far. I'm, I'm going to go down the 11 that I've jotted down here. We've got Shan Masood, Abid Ali to open. We've got Root at three, Babar at four, Ben Stokes will be five. Oli Pope, I think, probably gets in at number six because Pakistan haven't really produced a number six in this series just yet. Butler stroke yeah. Rizwan at seven, and we can argue that one out. Um, Yassir Shah comes in there as the spinner. So then we're looking at the three-man pace attack. Stuart Broad has to go in, doesn't he, on his performances this summer? Yeah. To me, you've got to have Jimmy Anderson in. He's going to be the f- he's going to be the first bowler to reach six hundred Test match wicket. And but on his performances in this series, I, I think well, Mohammed yeah, Mohammed Abbas gets in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you're going on pure performances in this series, then you go Abbas over Anderson. But you know, if if I was picking if I was picking this two weeks ago, I would go um, Anderson. And if I was picking this squad in two weeks' time for a start of a new series, I would still go Anderson. But we're picking it on um, this series. That's the rules. And right. the final place, Graham, and you can decide this one. I'll let you have this because I'm, I'm going to have Riz one in. Um, so you can decide the final bowling place. Um, it's between Anderson, Wokes and Shaheen Afridi. What about Nassim Shah? Uh, he, he's in the con- conversation, but I don't think he's... I mean, he's a fantastic prospect and he's a great bowler now. But is he quite those other three just yet? I'd probably say not. Look, I'm going Anderson. You know, he's the best bowler in the world. Still is the best bowler in the world. I'm going Anderson. No says, doubt about it. Says the lanky. Um, so our team then, um, Ted, Shan Masood and Abid Ali to open, Joe Root at three, Baba Azam at four, Ben Stokes at five, Oli Pope at six. I'm putting Mohamed Rizwan in because I have the microphone and the power to fade down Graham Harcastle if I need to. He's the wicketkeeper batsman. Mohamed Abbas, Yassi Shah, Stuart Broad and Jimmy Anderson will make up that 11. 
Fed up of collecting your team's matchday subs? Worried about carrying cash post-COVID-19? Try slateapp.co.uk. Less contact than contactless. Slate, the smartest way to collect weekly match fees and more. Download the app, slateapp.co.uk. Not just for cricket, any clubs that collect subs. It just makes sense. Stick it on the slate, slateapp.co.uk. Let's get back to county cricket, Graham. And Tim Wigmore did a, a very interesting piece about the future of county cricket in the Telegraph. In a very quick nutshell, it was talking about the 50-over competition, including um, some of the minor stroke national counties, whatever you call them these days, to make up 32 and to have them in a, in a straight knockout with obviously leading through to a final. I quite like that idea. And the T20 to carry on. The big one for me, though, was the red ball cricket side of stuff. Um, he was talking about a bit of a reduction in the ECB's payment to counties because of post-COVID. The three-divisional sort of structure to the county championship to continue as far as Tim Wigmore was concerned, I think in his piece, it was regional and it was basically the same as now, but playing home and away in the group's phases rather than just the one game that they've only got time for in, in 2020. I have had a quite a, de- a detailed conversation with a lot of the cricket badgers out there on the at cricket underscore badger Twitter feed about how they would see it. And there's a big difference of opinion, as you'd expect, because a lot of people say, well, the two-divisional structure, that's fine. Um, We want 14 games in a season. I I would go down myself, Graham, a suggestion that was sent in um, to me, where, and I quite like this idea, of having the first half of the season done on a regional basis. So you play in groups of six, you play five games. It's a bit haphazard who plays home and who plays away, but uh, that would change year to year. And then the top two go into the first division for the second half of the season. The three and four go into the middle division for the second half of the season. And the fifth and sixth place sides go into the bottom division. And obviously only then, the teams from Division 1, they play out and the top two then meet in that Lord's final to decide who is the champion county for that year. I quite like that because you get the combination of both regional at the start, um, which cuts down on travel costs, supporters get to um, maybe go and see a few more away games earlier on in the season. And then you can play anybody later on in the second half of the season. And what the crucial thing to me is that at the start of that campaign, however realistic that might be looking at squads and what have you, but at the start of the campaign, every single one of the 18 counties has a chance of being champion county that year, whereas at the moment that doesn't exist, does it? Yeah, I, there are the, the classification argument is, is an interesting one. There are there are a number of ways to to kind of do that, and that is as as sensible an option as I have heard. I, I would not be against that at all. I've had my head turned a little bit by this Bob Willis Trophy. I think it works really, really well. I like it. However, it needs to go to ten games. The one thing at the start, at the start of this, right at the start of COVID, when I was coming up with ideas for playing for a return to cricket, this was the option that I came up with in my head. A five-game tournament, three conferences of six, through to knockout stages. The difference I had, and it, and it, was, it was regional groups I had, the difference I had was that I would have added in an extra knockout game. So I would have had the three group winners qualifying, I would have had the next second place, the, sorry, the best second place finisher qualifying for the semifinals, four-day semifinals going through to a, a final. And, and actually, the way that the schedule has been put out, there is quite a gap, isn't there, between 
there's what 10 I think I think the last blast group game is on the 20th of September with the final of the blast on the 3rd of October now I would have thought that you could have squeezed in another knockout game within that period and extended it by a couple of days so maybe maybe extend it to extend the end of the season to the 5th or 6th of October rather than the 3rd just to give an extra just give a chance of an extra knockout game and moving forward I would like three groups of six 10 group games so whether it's home and away twice you know if you stay within your five group your three groups yeah. you're playing each other twice 10 games home and away or or, or those differences that you've talked about splitting your groups into into classifications then I would like either a semi-final and a quarter and a final or a quarter final semi-final and final so that then that gives counties the opportunity to play 12 or 13 first class games I'll tell you what great you just give me an idea there because I've always I've been thinking and racking my brains about how this might work and I've, I've as I say I've done the the first part on the regional then you get you swap into your divisions for the second half of the season and obviously the top six then in the first division are the teams vying out but if you actually made it so that the it was quarterfinals um, you could actually have, and you could seed it, couldn't you? Maybe, but you could actually have the winners of the second division and the third division, maybe even qualifying for the quarterfinals and getting a second bite at the cherry, or having a playoff for the quarterfinals yeah, or something maybe. like that. Because yeah. everybody, everybody's I mean, saying that division two and division three would be dead rubbers. But if you actually gave them the carrot of still being able to qualify for the main event at the end of the season, then it's not dead, is it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that is one thing. There are, there are plenty of ways round moving forward with a three conference system. The one thing that people may say is, well, there are counties who are only playing, who are only going to play ten championship games as opposed to the fourteen they play now. I've got a little bit of an addition that is. I wonder if it's going to be the same as mine. Go on. Right. My addition is that at the moment, if you are going to push through into three conferences, the re- the regional side of it could get quite repetitive. If you're playing Derbyshire v Durham every season, it could get quite repetitive. So the only way I could think of you doing it, and once all the, the need for restricting travel is dead in the water, just draw names out of the hat so that you, you know, it could be it could be a group with Yorkshire, Derbyshire, Essex, Somerset, Worcestershire, Kent, for argument's sake. There is no doubt that the biggest fixture in county cricket is Yorkshire v Lancashire. No doubt at all. Middlesex story comes close, but it is still streets behind. That's me talking personally as a as a northern lad. I would argue until cows come home that that is the biggest fixture in county cricket. Therefore, I would not like to go through a season without that fixture. I would be engaged if they played that on my local cricket club up the road. If I could just pop in a second. The reason I have the, it starts regional and then it goes to um, divisions is to avoid losing those local rivalries. I, I totally agree. That if you draw it as regional and you play the whole season as regional and only the playoffs at the end and the final at the end are non-regional, then you basically just play the same five sides every single year and that becomes a little bit tedious and you start missing the fact that you can't go to home, yeah, Worcester look, and all the rest this, of it. But this, by having it half look, and half, you get a best of both worlds, don't you? Yeah, fine, fine. That's not, that's not a problem. Still, having it, having it that way, I would not get bored by seeing 
Yorkshire v Lancashire three times a year. <laughs> and what what I'm going to say is that I think as a way of mitigating against people saying, well, my team only gets 10 championship matches, I would give counties the option and a week in the schedule free to organise a fixture of their choice. Counties don't have to take this up. They could just say if they wanted, no, we're, we're not bothered about that. We just want a free week. However, counties could say, well, actually, we're missing out on Yorkshire v Lancashire, for example, at Scarborough. That, that was due to the fixture this year. The ticket sales for that were quite astronomical. And I, I would be absolutely amazed. I haven't heard anything, but I would be absolutely amazed if that fixture is not on the schedule next year, if it reverts back to two divisions, both are in Division 1. Therefore, my friendly week would give counties like that the opportunity to say, we want to go and take Yorkshire v Lancashire to Scarborough. You don't call the Roses much a friendly. No, you don't call it. You, do, call it, well, you, call, you call it whatever you want. You know, it can be played for the... And I think I think the two sides play for the Regiment Cup, don't they, at the moment? Yeah. That's that's one of the things. So you just play for that. It's an option to bump up the the number of first class fixtures that members see. It is uh, an opportunity to to bump up revenue with your biggest and most popular fixture. And I, I think that is one way of doing it. You're very close to what I was gonna suggest, because I was gonna suggest that week to be used for anybody not or not still involved effectively playing each other and the all the counties would want to have some kind of pre-season as you know at least a warm-up game at the start of the year so effectively if you, if you include the the last round of warm-up fixtures as being a week just before the season proper starts and that week you're talking about well there's two extra fixtures for every single county give them first class status to show that we're actually taking them seriously play your best sides and you a the first one you get ready for the season and then the second one yeah, you could throw in a couple of youngsters if you want to give them a first-class experience, but you still play it seriously because it's a first-class game. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, that's that, that's one way around, to me, mitigating against the, the complaints of, well, you've cut down on first-class cricket. And it's, it's up to it's up to counties to, to gauge the feeling of the members and things like that as to whether they actually want to fulfil that week. Uh, the other thing, this might sound a bit doom and gloom, but the kind of culture of 2020, the year 2020, is a little bit doom and gloom in many in many other kind of repercussions of COVID, I, I think anybody that turns around and says, I'm a traditionalist, I want two divisions. I mean, t- traditionalists can't really say that, can they? Because to do, the two divisions haven't been around forever. I think any way that you, you preserve 18 counties, any way you preserve and possibly in this case, actually promote Red Bull cricket at county level is, is a good thing. And if it keeps 18 counties occupied and busy, get some revenue in, adds a little bit of renewed excitement to a to a Red Bull competition at county level. I would kind of mistrust a little bit anybody that goes against that because I think in, in COVID times, a lot of the conversations that we might have been having this year, I mean, I would have been very much opposed to the 100 coming in this year and I would have been quite vocal about, I don't think there's a need for it. Well, I still don't think there's a need for it. I think it's a, it's a, it's a poor choice by the ECB. But you won't hear me banging the drum anymore against that because whatever brings money into the game, whatever preserves cricket 
at a domestic level is the right thing to do because we are in a position where if things go a little bit wrong, if there's a second wave or if there's horrendous weather at the start of a season or, or whatever, some of those 18 counties are teetering on the edge, aren't they? They are teetering on the edge of extinction. And I don't think anybody wants to see job losses, players out of contract. I think there's going to be a lot of players that lose their contracts anyway um, that would have otherwise have, have been kept on for another year. Cricket is in a precarious position and I think anything that's designed to add interest and to further it and to keep 18 counties is a good thing. The thing about the 100 now, I mean, there is an argument to suggest, and there's that, I mean, we could be going down a rabbit hole here and we could be here for hours, but there is an argument to suggest that the 100 is now more important than ever that it's successful because it, you know, for, for it bringing in revenue to, to push the game forward. You know, it's, I mean, there's a heck of a lot of pressure on it now. It has to succeed, doesn't it, more than ever? I'm not even going to answer you. I'm not going to be, I'm going to, I've turned over a new leaf, Graham. I'm not going to, I've, uh, my instinct is telling me, fight him, fight him, tell him he's wrong, tell him he's wrong. But I'm actually just going to let that, your comment lie and we'll move on. Because <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to get into a hundred discussion. Because as you say, we will be here until next, probably next year, to be honest. I've got some washing to do before the next round of championship <laughs> game starts. England against the Pakistanis, third test match. The Aegeus Bowl Mark 2, or Mark 3 if you actually include the whole season. England are 8-11 to 11 ahead of this test match. Pakistan are 11-4. to 4. The draw is 7-2. to 2. England 1-0 up. Both of our series predictions, Graham, are still very much live because I went one all in the series and you went 2-0 uh, to England. So you're looking for an England win, I'm looking for a Pakistan win. I think probably both are as, as likely as each other. I don't think, though, in terms of those prices ahead of this test match, from what I've actually viewed here, I don't think Pakistan have been second best in this series at all. And 8-11 to 11 odds on on England, as opposed to 11-4 to 4 for Pakistan, I think the value very much is with the Pakistan side. Yeah, they, they've, played, they've played pretty well, haven't they, Pakistan? Um, however, I, I, I stuck with... I, I, I predicted 2-0 at the start of the series, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna change my mind now. You are in a position where you follow the grain with a 2-0. You can actually at least cover your cover yourself with a kind of little bit of a stake on Pakistan at eleven to four and a nibble on the draw at seven to two and guarantee yourself a profit, can't you, at this stage? Oh yeah, yeah, you can, yeah. I, I would I would still given full five days or given enough time for a result, I would still I would still prefer England. I still think they're the, the better team home conditions, et cetera, et cetera. They won the first test. They should still be fairly buoyant from, from that, even, even though it seems a lifetime ago, given the amount of waiting around at, at Southampton this week. I still think that England will will win, given enough time. The variable is the weather. Wouldn't completely rule out Pakistan. Don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not sat here saying, well, they're no hopers. They've got no chance. Don't get me wrong. My inclination would be with you that I would probably just, if you had a gun to my head and I had to pick one team, I would pick England. But I don't think there's much, there's much between them. Pakistan could have just as easily as England have won that first test match, probably deserved to win that first test match. And if you look at the scores from the Aegeus Bowl, the fledgling scores that we had in that uh, that test match, I think Pakistan's, um, Pakistan's total in that first innings was competitive. Um, England weren't necessarily going to race past that first innings total. So that would have, it was a, such a shame, actually, because I think if that had been. If there'd been four days available for that second test match, we could have had another cracker available to us in that one. We have 20 units, though, Graham, in our prediction tournament. I have taken the lead because I did pick the draw last week um, with 10 of my units at 5-2. to two. So that is money in the bank for me. We obviously still have, when we meet again next week, 
We have the results of our third test match predictions plus our series predictions, which could change everything. But you have 20 units, Graham Hardcastle, to spend on this third test match. Where are you going to take me? I'm going to go 10 on the England win. I talked up Jimmy Anderson at the start of the week. Uh, sorry, at the start of this podcast. He encouraged, didn't he, in that first innings against Pakistan at the Aegeus Bowl. I'm going to go him topping the wicket taker for the other 10. Well, Jimmy Anderson is in that market at 11-4. to 4. So Jimmy Anderson 11-4 to 4 with 10 of Graham's units. England win at 8-11. to 11. I'm in a position, aren't I, where through this summer I can't actually lose. I'm one nil up from the West Indies series. So if I lose this Pakistan prediction series, it, it, it's 1-1. So You didn't read the small print, did you? The Pakistan series was worth three times as many points as the West Indies series. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with my 20 units. I'm going to put five of them on Pakistan at 11-4 to because I do like this Pakistan side. They may not win it, but I do like this Pakistan side. I've also liked the way Joe Root's starting to look with the bat. He's, he's not actually got the big score yet, Rooty, as, as skipper, but he's starting to look a lot more fluent with the bat. I think if this, this season was another kind of month or two and it had been normal length, we might be seeing vintage Joe Root by now, but he's 13-5 to to be England's top batsman in the first innings so I'm going to put another five of my units on Rooty at 13 to 5 to top England's batting markets I'm going to look into the bowling markets as well and I just think if the pitch plays anything like that second test match pitch at the Aegeus Bowl Mohamed Abbas looks an absolute joy on that that wicket that surface he's just a little bit of a master isn't he Um, with his uh, control he's 11 to 4 to be the top first innings bowler for Pakistan. And he's going to take my other 10 units, Mohamed Abbas. So bowl well, sir. 11 to 4, you are carrying my units on your shoulders, Mohamed Abbas. That concludes our third test match preview, Graham Harcastle. As always, thank you very much for joining me. No problem at all. See you soon. Give us a follow at cricket underscore badger on the Twitter feed. If you like and subscribe and leave a nice comment on the Cricket Badger podcast, that would be much appreciated too. Thank you to our sponsors, tvsportsblog.com. Give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. And more than anything, thank you for listening and enjoy the third test match. We'll see you very, very soon on the Cricket Badger podcast. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.